We read Luke chapter 15 there in the New Testament. Uh, Very familiar probably to most all of you, I hope. Contains one of the most loved parables of our Lord while he was teaching um, here on earth. And as we're getting into this, I want to remind you what a parable is. A parable is a casting or placing something side by side. So when Jesus taught in parables, he basically took a heavenly truth and placed it uh, beside an earthly story or earthly characters to bring home those that teaching. In fact, a parable always tells a story, it teaches an ethic of some sort, but mainly it contains theology and Christology. So no matter the parable... Um, the point is always going to be Christ and God. There are no secret hidden messages or meanings that we're supposed to try to dig up. Um, in fact, Christ was the message that was hidden and has been revealed. And um, uh, Jesus will, in fact, say that later. And uh, the apostle points that out. Jesus said to his disciples when they asked him, Why do you teach us in parables? He said, Because it's for you to know uh, the secrets of God, but they've been revealed. And so he taught this way, and uh, only we know that only the people with the Spirit can understand the things of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that. And to the rest, no matter how plain and simple you teach it, they will not understand it. So just a way, by way of introduction there to what a parable is, we'll jump into this thing. The most famous probably of Jesus' parables, um, the one that we refer to as the prodigal son, in fact, there are some people in history, Charles Dickens, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said this was the greatest story ever written, the story of the prodigal. I'll agree with them as long as it's because it points us to Christ and it reveals Christ. But it is a great story. Now, the interesting thing is the word prodigal doesn't even appear uh, in it. We use that from the outside in to refer to this young son who goes away and spends everything wastefully or recklessly and extravagantly. Because the word that's used here, uh, the word prodigal means a spendthrift. And so this young man, obviously we see why he's referred to as the prodigal. It's not because he goes away and comes back, but it's because of what he did when he went away. He took what was really um, something that could have been used differently, and he spent it recklessly and extravagantly. So a lot of people think he's the main character of the story, the young son, but I think the father is probably the main character because in the father we see the character and the nature of God. And God ought to be, as I mentioned already, the main character and is of all the Bible. And um, the point of this story and all these three stories that we just read is to point us to God and to see God. And so I want you to notice as we go through this that um, the point here is God and he is not only receiving sinners, but he is searching for sinners. Now, he searches for sinners not because he's lost them and don't know where he put them, kind of seeking, but I think this is for our benefit, so that we can know that God really does care for his people. So if you're one of those who are thinking, well, is God really concerned about me, or where is God? I want you to hear that for our benefit perspective here, God is pointing out the fact that yes, he would leave 99 to come find you, his child, because you matter to him. 
even if you had nine days wages as the lady in the second parable had God said I would leave that and light a candle to turn the house upside down to find one little coin because that's how much my people matter to me I could still have one son at home and the other off spending the family inheritance and I'll wait until that one going away comes back and when he does there will be a party the point of all these um, <coughs> parables here in Luke 15 is to show us I believe what lostness looks like but the fact that God saves lost people and when he does heaven rejoices a dumb senseless lamb sheep that has gone astray when he's found heaven rejoices even over a lifeless inanimate coin the angels rejoice when a wicked rebellious son comes home there's a party in the father's house all that is just piled up in this passage just a lot of reading there in chapter 15 but it's it's all pointing us to these facts. Now, if you remember Luke 14, just before 15, Jesus is doing this teaching in the house of a Pharisee, sharing a meal with them. So this makes this even more um, telling and more important. He knows the pride of the Pharisees. He knows how they only choose the best seats for themselves, and they only invite other like-minded individuals to their meals and people that they think like them are righteous. And so Jesus, knowing all this pride and arrogance, he encourages them there in chapter 14 to start inviting the poor to their meals, the blind and the lame. Not just the religious, because God himself is concerned over the lowly. In fact, he says those who are low he lifts up, and those who are exalted he brings down. It even prompts them in 14 to say, this man, Jesus, he eats with sinners. And he receives them. And that's the point. Yes, he does. So Jesus is telling these parables, in fact, to answer their question. Yes, I do receive sinners. And there's probably at least three groups of people here. Not just the Pharisees, not just the sinners, but his disciples as well. All of whom are would fit in the group sinners. They're all hearing these stories. They're hearing the lostness spelled out but they're also hearing the true nature of repentance and above all they're seeing what the love of the father really looks like now going straight to this parable with the two sons the son's request to have all of his fortune given to him certainly is selfish it's inconsiderate it's disrespectful not only to the family but especially it's disrespectful to his father in fact, it would be the equivalent of saying, Dad, I just wish you were dead and out of the way because I want my inheritance. I don't want you. And so you can see in that already the selfishness of sin. It's the same thing that happened in the garden. No, Adam said, I don't want you in your word. There's got to be something more. And whatever it is, I want to take it. Because you're keeping something from us only to find out that the treasure was not something God was keeping away from them. The treasure was God, and they couldn't see that. It's what sin does. It blinds us to that fact that the treasure is not stuff. The treasure is a person. And so this son, who would have not received his inheritance until 
his father was dead, was in essence saying, I don't want you, I wish you weren't here, so give me what's coming to, my, to me. The father should have been at the top of the list of one who was honored. In this culture, certainly, that was the way it exists. But he says, I want, what I, I want what's mine, I want it now. And it would have been divided, divided up one-third to him, two-thirds to the elder son, because the elder would have become the ruling elder in the house. And it's interesting that the son doesn't use the normal word for inheritance when he says, give it to me, because the normal term for inheritance has contained within it <laughs> leadership, responsibility, taking care of the family, accountability. He didn't want that. He just wanted the stuff, not any of the responsibility that came along with the stuff. He wants independence and freedom. Sin brings that, especially independence and freedom from a God. No responsibility, no accountability. He just wanted what was coming to him. And the Father granted the request which was amazing. And it gives us this picture of a broken relationship, this picture of sin, the sinner departing. So these parables start making sense. There's lost ones who are going astray. There's a lost coin. There's a lost son. This is what sin does. It makes man believe what he's doing is right in his own eyes. The Bible says there's no fear in their eyes. The ultimate picture of lostness, a person who wants nothing to do with God, the house of God, the people of God, but especially God. No accountability to God, no accountability to people. Does not want to submit to God nor answer to God. We read that Psalm 10, that picture. <coughs> the one who loves riches and wealth and stuff is the one who hates God. The son got what he wanted, but not long after, of course, verse 13, he's in a foreign country. Gathered it all together, went into a Gentile land, and he spent it all. Now, the interesting thing is, he spent all of it, that was his fault, but then what happened next was not his fault. A famine arose. So you can't escape the sovereignty of God no matter how much you run, and no matter how much you have. God knew where he was, and just like when he came to Adam and said, Where art thou, Adam? It was not like he had lost Adam and couldn't find him. The son couldn't run far enough away to get away from God's providence. What he had done was, instead of giving up and running home, he tried something else. He attached himself to a citizen of the country, a very probably above-average person, stuck himself to this guy, let me do something. The guy said, go feed my pigs. And so he does. You can imagine at this point, the Pharisees and the scribes are probably thinking, and the disciples too, man, this guy really is bad. This Jewish man going into a Gentile land, willing to become a servant of a Gentile and feed pigs. But his sin had made him desperate. And as the Bible says, he would have gladly, with a strong desire, eaten with the pigs. He would have fought the pigs over the slop. He was taking anything, but no one would give him anything. 
And so sin had its payday, so to speak. And again, I'm sure the scribes and the Pharisees are so disgusted. How could, such, how could a man be so wretched? But again, I'm not sure they would have been able to see at this point the real nature of sin here. The real nature of this man's sin. It wasn't eating with the pigs or serving a Gentile. The real sin was rebellion against his father. And his father's love. And that's what sin always is, by the way. Sin is always a violation of God's love. Again, Adam and Eve thought God was keeping something from them. All he was doing was loving them in a way to protect them. This young man had shown disdain toward his father. He had despised him, dishonored him, wished he was dead. And that's what our sin does against God. I mean, ultimately, sin is saying, I don't want anything over me or anybody over me. I'll do what I want to do. I'll decide for myself. I'm sure he had tried not to think of his father during all this time, but real repentance begins to take hold of him and he gains an honest assessment of his situation. That's what happens in real repentance. When God gives repentance, you come to yourself. Now, too many people try to preach this in, in such a way to say, look, this, this man finally uh, decided by his own free will that he would do something differently. I don't think that's it at all. I think true repentance whacked him in his head and he came to himself. And he didn't, he didn't turn to anything other than, I'm going to go home. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning yourself back toward home, back to God. Not that you have the power to do that within yourself because you don't, but when real repentance comes from God, it will bring you back to Him. Repentance is always linked to faith. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. Worldly sorrow only leads to death. So the young man decides, I'm going home. But I like what he says here. I have sinned against heaven. I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and against my father. I will return to the place and place myself at the mercy of the father. Pharisees have to be thinking at this point, well, he has to go home, face the punishment, do the time, and then earn the Father's favor, work or gain to get back in the place where he belongs. And they would have thought to themselves, God might receive him once, that, once he does what he needs to do to get right. Once he does the work, the Father will probably take him back, but it will be a long process. But those, if you read, uh, I think at the beginning of 15, in this house of these Pharisees also had gathered sinners and tax collectors and they were listening also with great anticipation. What would the Father do to the bad sinner? Because there's no doubt that in this parable this guy was a bad sinner. We can figure that out. But perhaps some of them were thinking well if God would look if God is looking for this kind of sinner and receives him surely he'll receive me. Pharisees thinking, oh, he'll receive him, but they'll have to do something. He'll have to do something to get it, to earn it. He'll have to be make himself righteous. And then the father re-enters the story. And I love how it says, while the child was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
So though the father, his, his honor had been tarnished in the community, though he had been shamed by his son, though he should have and rightfully could have made his son sit outside the city gates and be shamed and humiliated until he was ready to take him back. Rather than exposing his son to that shame, he protects him from it. I mean, another beautiful, incredible picture of Calvary. Rather than allowing us to be brought under the shame and judgment of sin, Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross and considered it a joy. This father ran. Middle Eastern men didn't run. It's the word that means to run like you were in a stadium. He was running fast. He hurried and presented himself to take the shame that was coming to his son. He ran and embraced him and kissed him over and over. And the son didn't even get to finish his speech that he had prepared. The father begins to get out the best robe, the family ring, the shoes, only family members wore shoes, the fatted calf. And I think it's important to note the party was not for the son, not the younger son or the elder son so much as it was a party to honor the father and his compassion. The celebration of the father comes at the repentance of one sinner. And so he throws a party and the party honors the compassion of the father. There's a lot of irony in this parable. Dramatic irony. You can see all of it. But the biggest irony of all comes down to the elder son. The one who stayed home. This is the good son, right? The loving son, the honorable son. The one who had honored his father. The religious son who had kept all the rules, did all the right things. (coughs) But then we find out this may be the ultimate irony. The Pharisees comment, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is pointing out they're sinners of all kind, not just the kind you see as a sinner. You, you all think the young son is the only sinner in this parable. And I believe at this point, when Jesus begins showing this, perhaps they understand that they are represented in this parable by the elder son the Pharisees, the religious people they're the ones that God came to and brought through the prophets and the law they got the law through the prophets they were the special ones they were the chosen people of God yet here they are not honoring God not understanding that God had sent his son the Messiah missing him completely because of their religion, their sinfulness. Though the elder son never left home, he was gone in the same way the younger son was gone. He was in the world, he was out in the field working, performing the daily tasks, doing what was expecting, earning his inheritance, he thought. But he was really a hypocrite. He really didn't care about the things of the Father. 
Because when you care about the things of the Father, you love the things the Father loves. You rejoice over the things the Father rejoices over. The elder son really had no relationship with the father either. He never defends his honor. He never rebuked the younger brother. When the younger brother came and made his request, the only thing the elder son was worried about was the inheritance. The same thing the younger son was worried about. He wasn't even worried that his, son, his brother had come home. In order for us to be able to have a proper love for the things God gives to us, we have to have a proper love for Him first. And that's why the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you've been raised with Christ and seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, never forget that God is the ultimate treasure. The Pharisees wanted to be seen as the religious and the faithful people, just like the older son wanted to be seen as the good and faithful son. But the religious Pharisees, their worship was in vain and all for show, and Jesus constantly pointed this out. They only wanted the accolades. They didn't want God. They weren't willing to accept the Messiah that God had sent for them. They believed rather that God God was lucky to have them. And that they deserved God because they had stayed at home and worked and done all the right things like the older son. But you can't work for grace. And the truth is once grace conquers you and you are surrendered to it, the inheritance, as glorious as it might be, is dim in comparison to the fact that you got God or that He got you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We, we mistakenly believe that there's a treasure that's not Jesus. He is the treasure. Everything else is thrown in, but all of that dims in comparison to getting God. And I think that's perhaps the point of this parable. Jesus is saying... Whether the younger son took early his stuff and went away or the older son stayed to get his stuff later, neither one of them loved the father. And both are extreme lostness. But the good news is whether it's the elder son who lives riotously or the younger son who lives riotously or the elder son who stays at home and does follows all the rules, God is seeking and saving both those kinds of sinners. Which is good. God saves any kind of sinner. Every kind of sinner. They come near the house, this older son does in the parable. And he hears the music and dancing. And he says, Explain what's happening. And they do. Hey, the younger son has been received safe and sound. But the Bible says he was angry and he would not go in to the party. And so the father says in verse 29, look, all these years, I mean, he says to his father, all these years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment, which has got to be a lie. Sounds like the rich young ruler. I've kept all the, I've kept all the 
commandments. You never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. See, again, he's missing the point. He thinks his brother, this part is just for my brother. Let him know he's missing the point. In verse 29, in one sentence, the elder son refers to himself five times. In case you're wondering what he's worried about. That's what he's worried about. And later his father tells him, all I have is yours. You want to go? You can have it, but you're missing the point. Your brother who is as good as dead is home. All that I have is yours. He wouldn't go in to the party because he was so selfish. He even refers to his brother as this son of yours, not my brother. The son of yours. But in between these two incredibly selfish sons, we have this amazing character, this merciful father who pleaded with his son and treated with him. The son was mad, so mad he wouldn't go into the party. But I, I say he couldn't go into the party because nobody comes to the party unless they are invited. And the one who hates the father don't get to come in. I'm not sure he could have went into the party if he wanted to. So the father came out to him. Again, I don't want to just make this say whatever I want it to say, but it's just a beautiful picture of the fact that you don't get to just traipse up and do what you want to to the father. The father has to come get you. And then when he comes to get you, whether you're the elder son or the younger son, <coughs> whether you're the, the publican or the Pharisee or the tax collector or whatever, then you're brought into the Father's family. I'm sure the Pharisees are confused at this Father. They don't understand why is he doing this. After all, the, young, the older son has done everything that he's supposed to do. They don't care about his attitude and his hatred for his brother and really is despising his father. They just think it's all bound up in work, see. We did all the good stuff. He did all the right things. Why is the father not shaming the younger brother for the older brother? And so I think this is why they probably become so angry. They realize that Jesus is saying, the Pharisee to the Pharisees, you're, you want to you want to know which one of these people, characters you are in the story? You're the older brother. But I love what the Father says: "All that I have is yours." That is a beautiful picture of salvation. You've been trying to earn something that's given freely. So many people doing that. So many people thinking that they can. Get to God by doing stuff. Those who have been justified by His grace, we read in Titus, become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Father says to him, it was right, it was necessary. Because this is what God does. He rescues sinners. And I have said this and I'll say it again. There, 
there will never be a sinner who wants Christ who doesn't get it. So a lot of times accusations are hurled at those of us in the Reformed camp and Calvinistic camp. Well, you just believe there's people out there who want Christ but can't get saved because God didn't choose them. No, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe there will ever be a sinner who wants Jesus don't get him. Because if you want him, there's a reason you want him. It's not because out of your sinfulness somehow you arose above it and decided to come follow Christ. God, as we read in our catechism teaching, by his spirit he gives you the desire to be saved and to know him. God is seeking sinners and he brings them to himself. And when he brings them to themselves, as he did this young man, they come back home. They come to the Father. Again, this parable is to teach us a lot of things, but that God does save sinners. Those who are open and arrogant about it, those who hide it well and stay at home and follow the rules, those who are very worldly, those who are very religious, God saves all kinds of sinners. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your testimony. You have a time where <coughs> you went away and God brought you back. And maybe you've just always been away and He's never brought you home. The call from the Scriptures and from the Gospel is to look to Christ and be saved. He will give you repentance of your sin no matter how little it is, no matter how big it is. He will save you to the uttermost. The lost parables are really about salvation because God saves. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. Lord, we ask you to add your blessings and teach us by the Spirit the things that we need to know, the things that need to be applied to our heart and lives. God, save those who do not know you at this point, those who are hearing the gospel but it seems like a mystery. I pray you'd open their eyes and hearts to understand that they would be saved. God, we know that that's how people get saved. So we trust you to do that. In the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.